All right, think with me for just a minute about some of the themes that we've been talking about as we've studied uh, here in the Gospels. Uh, One of the things we've talked about from the very beginning is that Christ's ministry is very different. This has not been a traditional ministry. This has not been a traditional campaign. He has not sought out what we might think of as natural allies. He's not gone after those that are in power, those that are in authority. Um, And that is because he is not bringing about an earthly kingdom. And he is taking pains to remind people at every turn that this is not an earthly kingdom. This is a kingdom that is not focused on earthly things. And because this is a different kingdom, it's going to be made up of different citizens. And so we've seen week in and week out, there's a very different group of people that are going to be responding to, to the gospel and responding to the invitation to be part of this kingdom. If you would, go ahead and go to, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, if you recall uh, how our class concluded last week, uh, Jesus had uh, gone back to Nazareth where he was rejected. Uh, he has been spending a lot of his time in this period that we're studying in and around the area of Galilee. And so he sends out his, his 12 apostles in this region of Galilee to the surrounding towns. He gives them power and authority to work miracles. They are also spreading the gospel. And then they come back to him. Um, we have almost a little bit of an interlude that tells us about John the Baptist and his death. Um, and as these apostles go out and preach with power and might, it reminds Herod of John the Baptist, who he killed, and it causes him to have great fear. But then as the apostles come back to him, Jesus seeks to withdraw. And, and it may be that he just wants to spend some time in fellowship with his apostles to hear about how their work has gone. It may also be that uh, in, in, his, in his hearing of the death of John the Baptist, that he wants to mourn. He wants to have some privacy to be with those that he is closest to on this earth. But he doesn't have that opportunity because it mentions that the multitudes seek him out. And so in Mark chapter 6 and in verse 30, um, let's see, let's actually go to verse 32. It says, they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves, but the multitudes saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. It's interesting to me, and this is just a side note, but you think about the excitement that is in this area right now. When we talk about individuals that are coming from surrounding cities, it, it takes a lot to get me to run somewhere. And, and believe me, and we're not running very far. These individuals are running from surrounding cities when they find out that Jesus is in the area just so that they can be in his presence, just so they can see what he's doing and they can hear what he is saying. So there's a great excitement as these individuals come. And we have this situation where these great multitudes of people have been there for a period of time, and Jesus has compassion on them, and he wishes to provide for them. Uh, if you look at some of the different accounts, uh, if you look at, uh, if you look at uh, I believe it's Matthew's account, uh, maybe John's account rather, uh, Jesus actually asks the disciples, there's some conversation between him and the disciples about feeding the people, um, and it, it's mentioned, why don't you provide some food for them? Again, this is just on the heels of Jesus giving miraculous power and authority to his apostles. And their first thought is, well, we don't have enough food. How are we going to provide for these people? We're going to see this, and we've already seen it, but just time and time again, the, the apostles, the disciples, they're, they're just, they are a perfect representation of where the people are at that point in time. They are still really, really, really short-sighted. You know, they have just had the power to work miracles, to cast out demons, to do all these incredible things. And Jesus says, hey, we need to feed this crowd of people. And they, well, we've only got a couple of loaves right here. You've got to think differently. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Think differently. Think a little bit bigger. 
But anyway, as we come to John, uh, is it those, those closing verses, verses 38 and following, he makes all the people sit down in hundreds and fifties. He takes the five loaves and the two fishes. He looks up to heaven. He blesses and, and, and breaks them. And then it's miraculously multiplied. Multiplied to the point in verse 42, it says they all ate. They were filled. They took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Here's just, just a, a quick thought question. And this is maybe not necessarily super consequential, but it's interesting to me. Why were there fragments left over? You know, we're, we're, Jesus knew exactly you know, how many people were there. He knew exactly what they would need. He was able to multiply a tiny amount of food on a grand scale. Why were there fragments left over? Give them more than what they actually need in, in a sense. I mean, okay. yeah, I see it as you know, he, he blesses us with all that we need and then some. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good point. So you know, if you, Nate, Nate mentioned he gives us more than we need. He gives us more than we asked for. What else? To me, it's like the miracle of the wedding. Because he didn't just turn water into wine. He turned it into the best wine. Yeah. It's like, let me really, really show you that this is, yeah. this is from God. Yeah. Exceedingly abundantly. You know? And, and, and I think there's a lot of different things. And this was just something that, that jumped out at me. Because you'll notice... Uh, a little bit later today, hopefully we can make it there, he's going to feed another crowd of 4,000 people. And the same thing. There, there's food left over. Um, from a very practical standpoint, there's evidence. That, that's the first thing that jumped out at me. There is physical evidence that he just multiplied on a grand scale a small amount of food to a lot of food. And, and as Bill mentioned, this is not the first time. The very first miracle, turning the water into wine, grand scale. We're not healing one person at a time. We're doing a miracle on a large scale but here we have actual evidence. You, you know, you weren't, you weren't just imagining it. It wasn't like he, he worked a miracle and all of a sudden he just made you feel full. He multiplied this food on a huge scale. And now, uh, hey, David, uh, Joe's got a comment. Um, he multiplied this food on a large scale. And now here is physical evidence that there is more than what we started with. And again, you transition from the physical evidence to the bigger spiritual picture that again, and I think Nate and Bill hit right on what I was thinking of. He gives us more than what we could even imagine. Again, think about where the disciples are. They can't even imagine what, what, what could we do with this power. Jesus, got, Jesus does. Yeah, Joe? Uh, I mean, I think it's the same point. I mean, he, just along the lines of the context, he's fulfilled every need of everybody. And, I mean, there's, to, for, for fragments we left over, I mean, if somebody was the least bit hungry, they would grab it, you know, so... Yeah, he's fulfilled every need. Possibly. Fulfilled every need and then some. Fulfilled every need and then some. I think it's also interesting to see when you're looking at there's this there's this secondary storyline almost of the progression of the apostles as they are maturing, as they are coming to understand, but also a progression of them in their care and compassion for the multitudes. Jesus has demonstrated at every turn his care and compassion. What what was what was their suggestion? Send them away. Listen, guys, we've we got to get these people out of here. You know, if they need something to eat, they can go get something to eat. And, and again, that, that's, that's going to be their response again later is send these people away. You know, let them go get their own food. And there, there is a difference between the master. There's a difference between the shepherd, the one true shepherd, his care and concern for the sheep. And, and these, these, these disciples, these apostles that are maturing in their journey. As they are growing, and you, and you think about where they're going to wind up when we come later on, later on in, in the, the account of the New Testament. The way that these apostles, the way that these first century writers think about the individuals that are at the churches. 
You know, there, there's going to be there's going to be some maturation that goes on there. But right now, they're not there. Right now, they don't have that same level of care and compassion. But but they're they're growing and they're getting there. As we progress on uh, throughout this, uh, John's account tells us that after this, the crowds want to make him king. So as you go to John, this is John six verse fifteen. So he goes and he sends them away. He's heading this problem off, and it's natural. You know, why why would you think that they would want to they would want to make him king? Well, if they're thinking of an earthly kingdom and an earthly ruler, what could be better? What could be better than a guy that heals all your sicknesses, that casts out all your demons, that feeds you? He literally takes care of every single physical need you have. Who could be a better king than this person? And in many senses, they're right. He would be the perfect king, and he is the perfect king, but not for those reasons. He is the perfect king for reasons that are far greater and far more consequential than meeting every single one of their physical needs. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But, but he realizes that this is, not, this is not the goal. And this is, in fact, detrimental to the goal of the spread of the gospel. If we were to start this political uprising, and now we're going to start involving entanglements from the government, from the Roman authorities, and we're going to try to start setting up a government and appointing lieutenants and all these other kind of things, that's not the goal. That's only going to get in the way. So he sends the crowds away. He sends the crowds away now, after he's provided for them, notice. He sends the crowds away, and he actually sends the apostles on. He sends the disciples on in the boat. Um, That's there in verse 45, if you're still in Mark's account. Mark's account, chapter 6 and verse 45. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to Bethsaida. Uh, Again, if you think about our little map of the Sea of Galilee, uh, if you've got kind of Capernaum on the top left, Bethsaida is beside it on the top right. So he's sending them to Bethsaida, he sends them away, and he stays back so that he could go to the mountain to pray. So he needs some time alone. You think about what he's dealing with. He's dealing with this this powerful weight, this responsibility. He has compassion for these people. He knows what they're going through. He wants to meet their needs, but he also understands that the best way to truly meet their needs is to provide them something greater than, than this bread, than this physical thing. And this is also setting up, hopefully, what we're going to talk about in a few minutes where he talks to them about the true bread of life. But we have this, we have this opportunity here where he sends, the, uh, he sends the disciples away in the boat, but then he comes out to them. Uh, the fourth watch of the night, very early in the morning, uh, it's, it mentions that there's bad weather. So there's bad weather, so he sends them ahead in the boat. Uh, but then he leaves the shore. Early in the morning, he's been praying by himself. He leaves the shore, he walks out to them. Again, just interesting to me, uh, the, the parallel here is in Matthew's account, and this is in Matthew chapter 14. This is the one that records Peter's reaction. Uh, but it's, I, I just think it's interesting that when they see somebody walking on the water to them in the middle of the night, what's their, what's their first reaction? Oh, it's a ghost. <laughs> not Jesus. Not the one that has worked miracle upon miracle upon miracle. Not the one that has been with them at every point in time and calmed the storms. And, you know, it's just interesting to me that that's their first reaction is that this is a ghost. This is some kind of supernatural apparition. But, but it is. It's Jesus walking to them on the water. Matthew's account is probably the one that we're a little bit more familiar with, where Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. He said, all right, come on. And Peter walks out to him, actually walks on the water. Again, we have this theme running. Evidence right in front of them. Evidence right in front of the people. Evidence right in front of the Pharisees and the scribes. Evidence right in front of the apostles and the disciples. But yet, he walks out to him on the water. I mean, just, just think about that for a second. Big storm, tons of wind. Jesus calls you out. You've got the faith to step out of the boat. That, that's, a, that's a huge leap. 
That is a huge leap. I don't want to discount that. That is a huge step to say, yep, I'll do that. I will step out of this boat in this terrible storm at what four seconds ago I thought was a ghost. But he does. And he walks on the water, but then he gets distracted. And he sees the wind, and he sees the waves, and he starts to falter, and he starts to sink. But then there's the Savior. And comes, rescues him, and takes him back to the boat. Uh, just, just picture upon picture upon picture of what they went through, what we go through on a regular basis. We have been presented time and time again with evidence of how God provides for us. We should have no lack of faith. But yet, how many times do we have a shortfall in our faith? And sometimes we take that big swing. And in a lot of ways, sometimes taking the big swing is the easy part. Sometimes going up against the Goliath is the really easy part. It's the Bathsheba that gets us. That's the thing. We can take that big leap of faith. We can take that big jump out of the boat. But then it's just taking the next step. That's where we falter. And I think that, that's, that's, a, that's a lesson that I think should, should just hit all of us when we think about the areas that we falter in our own life, is that sometimes it's just that next step. It's putting that one foot in front of the other, but that's when Satan works on us. That's when Satan, who is just, just a master at getting us, that, that's when he does. That's when, that's, when he, that's when he causes us to falter. So as they, as they come across the shore and the end of, of Mark chapter 6 here, it mentions they're coming over to uh, Gennesaret, so think about where Bethsaida is at the top. Now we're kind of coming back down, uh, back over to this area of Gennesaret. And it just mentions that when they come there, again, immediately, just like before, people running from the surrounding towns, immediately, verse 54, the people recognized him and they bring all these people to him to be healed. And it mentions that, again, just the touch of his garment heals individuals. Uh, it's just interesting to me when you think about how Jesus exercised his authority and exercised these miracles all the different ways. You know, sometimes it was just a spoken word. Sometimes it was just a touch of his garment. Sometimes it was him physically touching somebody. We'll talk about that as well. But just interesting how uh, he demonstrated across all these different domains his power, his authority, his ability to show compassion and to heal people. Uh, that's, that's everything from last week. Uh, I'll take, take a quick break. Any, any thoughts or comments on the feeding of the 5,000 or, uh, or Jesus walking to them on the water before we move on? Yeah, David. Just real quick, um, back to Peter getting out of the boat. Uh, you mentioned that he had enough faith to at least get out of the boat, but he started to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus. Oh. That reminds me of Colossians 3, 2. It says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Yeah, that's a good point. It is. And it's so easy to get distracted. You, know, you go back to the parable, the parable of the soils. Three out of the four take root, you know, or three out of the four uh, have, the, have the ability. They have some kind of reception of the gospel, but then they're choked out, they're carried away. And, and you're right, when we lose that focus, when we lose that focus and we forget what gave us the courage to take that first step in the, in, in the, in the very beginning, we can get distracted and we can fall. Okay, well, let, let's go, let, let's start our material for this week. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, for this week, I just stopped when I got to five pages of notes. So I, I didn't even... I didn't even bother to go through because I know we're not going to get there. So uh, I'll apologize to you in advance. Most of the time I'm, I'm good to make it through like two pages of notes. So, so we, we won't finish today, and that's all right. Um, uh, I don't know why that thing keeps, it keeps highlighting the wrong thing. Don't, don't worry about the little highlight part. Uh, but we are, we are now in this latter part of the Galilean ministry. So these next couple of chapters, 
Uh, Mark and Matthew really kind of follow in lockstep. So today we're going to be bouncing back and forth between Mark's account and Matthew's account. But if you think about where we are uh, in, in this Galilean ministry, now we are near the end. When you go to John's account, he tells us that before the feeding of the 5,000, the Passover was at hand. So that gives us a marker that we are in the, the springtime, and now we're going to be going through the summer and the fall, coming right up to the end of this Galilean ministry. So a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today are in this period, latter part of his, of his ministry. If you would, go ahead and let's turn. I said we're going to be spending a lot of time in Mark and Matthew, but let's go ahead and go to John chapter 6. Um, and also put this up. Uh, I like to kind of remind us uh, where we are. You think about all the different, the different places that we've been talking about. We've spent a lot of our time around the Sea of Galilee. Let's see. We've got the, uh, which one is it here? Oh, not that. Not that. No. I'm not going to mess with it. I'm going to break it if I do it. That one. There it is. There it is. Uh, so we've spent a lot of our time up here. Lake of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. Remember Bethsaida, Capernaum up here at the top, working our way around this area of Galilee. Uh, today we're going to talk about Jesus venturing north. He's going to go up to this region of Tyre and Sidon. Talks about him coming back down through Decapolis. He's going to be spending some time over here. So just to kind of get some of these areas in your mind, spending, spending a lot of our time up here in Galilee, but also working up north. It mentions Caesarea Philippi, talks about, again, Decapolis. So really spending a lot of our time up here in the north and away from, away from Jerusalem, not spending a lot of his time in Jerusalem where you would have really the, the hotbed of the Pharisees and the scribes and individuals that may put a premature end to his ministry. Okay? Uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and go to John chapter 6. If you still have that feeding of the 5,000 in your mind, that's perfect. Because you, you can see that feeding them with this physical bread is going to provide a natural opportunity for him to reference back as now he wants to talk to them about something that is far more consequential. So when you come to John chapter 6 and then on verse, uh, verse 22. So verse 22. This is right after he has arrived. So they realize that Jesus was not on the boat with the disciples, but now somehow he is here. He's here. And so they, they, they come to him, and it mentions they want to know, and it says there are these multitudes. Uh, and they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 25. And he gets right to the point. He says, listen, you, you don't care that I'm here because you want to hear what I have to say. You're all excited about everybody that I fed the other day. Uh, verse 27, he tells them, he admonishes them, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they have this question. Uh, I think this is, a, this is a very good question. And they say in verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So God is, uh, Jesus has told them here, don't labor for the food that perishes. You want to labor for a better food. Uh, this reminded me a lot of just a couple of chapters back, John chapter 4 and in verse 14, that woman at the well where she draws him physical water. He thanks her for that physical water, but he says, listen, I've got something that's better than physical water for you. I've got, I've got water that will never end. I've got water that you can drink and you will never thirst of again. So you see the transition, transition from the physical to the spiritual. Same thing here with the people, transitioning from the physical to the spiritual. Again, remember, they wanted to make him king, chapter 6 and verse 15. And they wanted to make him king because they wanted all their physical needs met. So he is really trying to transition away from that 
and say, listen, this is what is more important than that. And again, they ask a good question. Um, and it says they ask what to do, but it just doesn't seem like they understand. I, I, I get the impression there. They're saying, okay, well, what, what do we need to do? If we have to do some kind of a work, what kind of work should we do that we can get this really, really special bread that will just kind of magically reappear every day? And his answer to them is, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he sent. You believe in him whom he sent. The work that you need to do is not some special task. It's not some magical thing where you have to show up at a certain place on a certain day and there's going to be bread there. He's almost heading off where they're going next. Because where they're going next is comparing him to Moses. Because that's what Moses did for the children of Israel in the desert. Provided them this manna. And so they're, they're drawing these parallels. And again, not necessarily a bad parallel on, on the face of it. Moses, this lawgiver that came and provided physical bread for them. But just think about as we go back to, you know, we kind of referenced this before, Summer on the Mount. Think differently. Just go, go a little bit beyond. Go a little bit beyond. Yes, Moses, the lawgiver, provided you with physical bread. But where did that bread came, come from? That bread came from the Father. And so just like the children of Israel had to go out and there were specific things, you have to collect just enough for each day, don't collect too much, you don't collect on the Sabbath, that's, that's where their mind is. Their mind is, what do we do? How do we do it? Are you going to give us bread every single day? And he's going a step beyond that. And he's saying the work that you need to do is not pick this up here on this day, don't pick this up here on this day. The work that you need to do is to believe in the Father and believe in the Son that comes from the Father. Now, as a side note, I think this is a fantastic verse. When you look at the, these verses, verses 28 and 29, when you think about the work that we need to do, in some ways refuting that gospel of irresistible grace, there is something that is required on our part. What is the work that we need to do? Well, the work that we need to do is to believe. There is not this irresistible pull that calls us that we, can't, we don't have any say in. There is a work that we need to do. But again, it is not a task. It is not a special requirement. It is just that we believe. He says, you need to believe in him whom he sent. And we'll see a bold confession by Peter asserting that later on. Well, they, they recognize, say, okay, well, we want that. We, we, want, we want that we want that manna. We want that bread. But again, he's got to clarify for them. You have to believe, again, this manna did not come from Moses, but from God. And Jesus is the one from God. So that, that's what he's really getting at down in verses 33 through 35. The bread of God, verse 33, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Lord, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. That's their state right now. They have seen him, and they do not believe. They're coming back to him time and time again, but for their physical needs, not their spiritual needs. And if they are going to be kingdom citizens, if they are going to be the ones that make up this kingdom of heaven, they have got to transition their thinking away from the physical to the spiritual. And that is going to require them to acknowledge that Jesus is the one that comes from God, that comes from God, and He has the words of eternal life. Uh, well, well, naturally, they struggle with this. They struggle with this idea. As you come to verses 41 and following, they're really struggling with this idea that He comes from heaven. And so uh, it, it says there in verse 42, they said, "Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And and he's kind of pointing this back out to them. He says, listen, just just think about this. Think about what what you're you're kind of struggling with right now. Um, He said, listen, go, go back to the people. Go back to the children of Israel, okay? Yes, they had this manna, but they died. That manna wasn't the point. That manna was not the end goal. He says, go, go a little bit beyond that. Go down to verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Again, this was not the bread that leads to eternal life. Because they ate that manna, which was miraculously provided to them, but they died in the wilderness. And why did they die in the wilderness? Because they didn't have faith. God had told them, I am taking you to the promised land. He sends those, he sends those spies out and the spies come back and say, man, no way. Can't do that. There's giants there. We're, they've got big walled cities. The people didn't have faith. And so it wasn't the manna. It was their faith. They did not have the faith. And so he's trying to say, hey, listen, they, look, we, can, we can stick with this illustration. This is a good one. But go back and think about it. Why did they die in the wilderness? It wasn't the manna that gave them eternal life. It was their, their lack of faith. You can be different. If you have faith, I can give you a bread of life that is going to lead Uh, As it says in verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. They're still not getting it. Verse 52. So when you come down, verse 52, (laughs) you know, it's like it's like you see somebody that's drowning and then you kind of like throw them a concrete block. So they're, they're, they're drowning here. They're not getting it. And he's like, all right, here, let's just go one step further. And so when you come down, he says, most assuredly, verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This this is a a seminal separating moment. As we've talked before about a lot of the parables, the parables were separating moments. Individuals that were really there to hear teaching from the Master— They they were going to stick it out. They were going to chew on it. They were going to come to him and ask follow-up questions. They were going to desire to know what those parables meant. People that were there to see something cool, they're going to be out. This is a seminal, separating moment where Jesus sees some people that are struggling. Again, they're they're drowning. He says, all right, here's a concrete block. Chew on this. And this is going to separate a lot of people out. As we go into the following verses, uh, it mentions that after these difficult words... As Jesus is trying to convey to them weighty spiritual matters about what they needed to do to have true eternal life. Not thinking short term, not thinking about lunch tomorrow, not thinking about a physical kingdom, weighty spiritual matters of a heavenly kingdom. A lot of people are going to turn away. And that's what we find in verses 60 and following. It says, therefore, in verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew it himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So he's now putting it to those that are probably in that inner circle, these people that have been going around with him. Listen, it's not going to be easy. It's not just going to be, you know, healing people that are are blind and lame. There are going to be some things that you are going to have to, to grapple with and you are going to have to understand if you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He then puts it to the twelve. And here we have, we have Peter. Love Peter. Lots of highs and lots of lows. But we have Peter, as he says, as, as he says coming to them. Uh, it says Jesus knew from, from the beginning in verse 64 that there are those who would not believe. And he knew that there were going to be those who betray him. And he says in verse 67, do you also want to go away? Turning to the twelve. 
Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Got that one right. You have the words of eternal life. Even if we don't understand it all, what we need to know is that you are the one that has the words of eternal life. Okay? Uh, let's go ahead. For, for sake of time, we've got a lot more ground that we need to, that we need to cover. Uh, so let's transition back to, back to Mark, Mark chapter 7. We're going to see some more of these things as we go, uh, again, throughout this, uh, throughout this Matthew and Mark uh, parallel over these next couple of events. Let's go to Mark chapter 7. And, and I, I like Mark's account here. Uh, Mark does a little bit more explanation. Um, Mark does a little bit more explanation of what's going on. But he mentions in Mark chapter 7, really verses 1 uh, down through verse 23, uh, this whole issue of the Pharisees and the scribes coming and complaining that the disciples of Jesus are not adhering to these traditions that they've imposed on the people. And Mark explains they have all these different traditions of how you're supposed to wash your hands. It's like supposed to wash it with your fist. But then not only just your hands, you're supposed to wash the cups and the plates. They've got all these different washing requirements. Again, not, not commandments of God, commandments of men. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity. Uh, he, he says when you go down to verse 6, when you go down to verse 6, he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. And then he gives them an example. Uh, when you come down to verse 9, he says, You've rejected the commandment of God in exchange for your traditions. And a perfect example of that is how they treat the way that you're supposed to honor your father and mother. They have come up with this rule that if instead of giving to your father and mother to take care of them, if you say, well, whatever I would have given you, I've given to God. So now I'm relieved of this commandment over here. A perfect substitution. They have swapped out a commandment of God and replaced it with the tradition of their own. And so he highlights this. He highlights this and he says, listen, you know, this is the first lesson. You know, you cannot substitute traditions of men for the commandments of God. That is hypocritical and that, that is improper thinking. But then there's a second lesson behind all of this. And this is the lesson that he goes on to, to explain to his disciples. And this is very, this is very closely tied to what we studied in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, think differently. Go beyond what you know from the Old Testament. It is not a list of foods or a certain way that you wash your hands or a certain way that you wash your cup that is going to defile you. What is going to defile you are your thoughts and your behavior. Go down to verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. You think about these things that he lists. These are things that start in the heart. They start with an attitude. So you go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. You know, but I say to you, don't lust after a woman in your heart because that's where it starts. And if it starts there, it's too late. You've already, you've already sinned. You know, I, you've heard it said not to murder a man. I say don't call anybody a fool because, again, that's where it starts when you have these things in your heart. So he's trying to get them to think about that. This is not like a list of foods and a checklist and I've done all these things, so now I'm clean. You could do all those things and you could still be an evil and sinful person. So just think a little bit differently. Think, think greater. Uh, almost as, as if to highlight that, we're next told, and this is verses 24 through 30, 
of, of Mark chapter 7. Uh, this is also relayed to us in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 21 through 28, that Jesus is going north. So you think about where we had shown on the map. Now he's going up to Tyre and Sidon. And this is a region that we don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of recording that he spent some time in. But we know that he went up there to teach. This was going to be a region that was full of Gentiles. And we have again a Gentile woman that is going to demonstrate great faith and great persistence. Uh, note, how she, note how she addresses how she addresses the Savior. Um, let's see. And I think that's actually in Matthew's account. So if you want to flip over to Matthew's account real quick. I think he actually gives a little bit more detail of this interaction. Uh, Matthew's account. Yeah, verse 22. It says, Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So you look at the way that she addresses him. Uh, and then in verse 25, she came and she worshipped him. And she said, Lord, help me. So we see a Gentile woman who recognized immediately who Jesus is, son of David, shows that she has an understanding of the Old Testament. She has an understanding of the prophecies as to who the Savior is going to be. She cries out to him for help. His response is interesting in verse 24. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Has Jesus ever, ever taught or healed anybody that was, that was a Gentile? Well, yes, right? You know, we have in Luke chapter 7 and verse 9, the, the centurion. We have the interaction with the centurion. So we know of at least one individual, and, and I would imagine several more. But that, that was the first one that came to my mind. So it seems that here he is, he is testing this woman a little bit, and he's also providing an example uh, for, those, for those, that are going to, those that are going to be around him. And, and he has, and he has what, what is, what's, what's a fairly difficult saying to, to wrap your mind around. This is in Matthew chapter 15, verse 26. He says, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And her response in verse 27 is perfect. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. In verse 28, Jesus answered and said, a woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Her daughter was healed from that very hour. This shows to me that I think she has an understanding uh, of what's going on. Um, if, you, if you think about what, what could this mean? What could this, what could this, this wording mean? Taking the children's bread uh, and throwing it to little dogs. One thing that I read, and I thought this, this made a lot of sense to me. First of all, just without, without any kind of understanding, without trying to imply any further meaning, it's remarkable to see her humility, to see her faith, and to see her persistence. And Jesus acknowledges that. Great is your faith. A lot of times I think he points out when he sees faith in these Gentile nations as a way of making the Jews think. Listen, there are individuals out here that they are getting it, and you are not. But he, he, also, he also mentions as he says this to her, I, I, think she, I think she knows what she is asking for, and she has an understanding of what Jesus is trying to do. So if you think about it, if this children's bread, say this children's bread could refer to the teaching of the kingdom, while the crumbs could refer to these miraculous works of healing. Jesus' point, his ultimate point, was not to make everybody that he came in contact with well physically. Uh, and Alan's, Alan's, got a, Alan's got a comment. His point, you know, his, his ultimate concern was people's souls. Now, yes, he absolutely had compassion on the people. It mentions time and time again that he had compassion on the people. He cared about what afflicted them. And he wanted to make those that were hurting well. But that is not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to get to this heavenly kingdom. I'll stop right there. Go ahead, Alan. This is such a great 
story, if you want to call it that, to follow the one we were just talking about where he, he seems to ratchet up some intentionally offensive descriptions of the kingdom to the people, saying, you've got to eat my flesh, drink blood, and they say, I can't listen to this, and disciples leave. And then he takes them here to a woman and says some pretty intentionally offensive things to her in front of the disciples, and yet her faith is able to just penetrate through those things, those perceived offensive things, and she's, I still want what you have, where we see the people that they get offended by his teaching, and that's going to continue to happen. We see, you know, Paul writes that people, the cross is a stumbling block. That is offensive. I don't want to be on a cross. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this story showing that real faith yeah. is going to penetrate us, not liking what we hear, being offended by the truth of the kingdom. If we have real faith, we're going to get over it and yeah. keep going after it. Yeah, it's a great point. It's such, again, that's why I refer to, it is, it is a separating, it is a separating moment. And there, there, and we talk about with that big theme, who is going to be in the kingdom? Who is going to be in the kingdom? And it is those people that demonstrate that faith. Just like Alan said, this is, listen, even if I don't fully understand it, even if I don't know why you just said that, even if I don't fully grasp what you were saying, listen, I, I want to know, I'll get over it. I want what you have. I like how you said that. I want what you have. If you have crumbs for me, let me get those crumbs. I want crumbs. You know, if, if, I, if I am but a little dog in the kingdom hanging out around the kids, awesome. I will, be, I will be a little dog and I will take those crumbs. So again, whether she understood all of that or not, I, I don't know. But I think you can see, and, and Alan put it perfectly, she wanted what he had. And if he was willing to scrape some crumbs off the table and give it to her, she was going to take those crumbs. And she was going to do that because it came from the Savior. Because it didn't matter what it was, it mattered who it came from. And she understood that. And she got that. And that is going to fit so perfectly with some of the other things we're going to talk about when these, when these disciples are quarreling about who's going to be the greatest or who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus, again, is going to point out to them, it's not, it's not what you're thinking of. It's going to be those that receive these little children. So uh, just, just a, great, a great point there. And again, such a perfect contrast between what we've just seen with these multitudes of individuals that could not receive the truth. Uh, and Tali's got a comment back there. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, she acknowledged him as master. Yeah. So to me, that was really big. Yeah, she, she, in complete humility. She had no, no preconceived notions about who she was. Like I said, if her role in the kingdom was just to be the little dog that hung out around the kids and got the scraps, she was completely fine with that. And that's the attitude that we must have. He who desires to be first must be last. All right? Let's continue on uh, and try to see if we can make a little bit more, a little bit more headway. Uh, as, as we go through verses, go back, to, go back to Mark, if you will. Mark chapter 7. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Uh, we have Mark's account telling us about Jesus healing this individual who was deaf and mute. Uh, what's interesting to me about this is, uh, again, you think about the different ways that Jesus demonstrates his power. This was a very, a very physical, very physical manner of healing. Jesus is going to come up. He's going to actually put his fingers in this person's ear. He's going to use his own spit. Um, it's just interesting to me to see him demonstrate these different ways. Individuals can touch his garment and be healed. He can say something from a far distance away. An individual can be healed. He can touch somebody. And here, you know, he, again, he's putting his fingers in his ears. 
But it just reminded me of that passage that we talked about last week from Isaiah chapter 35 and in verse 5 and 6. That prophecy talking about, uh, you know, the deaf being able to hear, the lame being able to walk, the mute being able to speak. And if you were paying attention, you would be connecting these things. You would be seeing the, the wonderful power of the miracles, but you would also be seeing prophecy fulfilled right in front of you. And there would be no doubt in your mind. Uh, as to who this was. I also think it's interesting, uh, and we're not going to read a lot of these verses here, but it's interesting that he pulls this man aside, verse 33. So he's not in front of all the crowds when he does this. Uh, clearly, Jesus has no need for notoriety. Again, this is him demonstrating his compassion. He uses that physical touch. Again, we see a request to tell no one, but these individuals that are healed cannot contain uh, what, they're, what they're mentioning. I had one other thought. It's just interesting to me how many times Jesus tells individuals not to spread this around. One other thought that I had was that this could also be just another way of him expressing his compassion for these individuals. He was not using these individuals to just prove a point or just solely to spread his message. He had compassion for these individuals. He wanted to help them with the things that were afflicting them. Again, the, the bigger point was the kingdom, and it was their souls. But he also wanted to help them. He cared for them. He looked at them as, as sheep without a shepherd, and he wanted to be their shepherd. And I just had that thought as I was studying today that, you know, perhaps one element of this in, in his broader, bigger plan was that it wasn't just, hey, let me heal you, now go tell four people. Like this is some kind of pyramid scheme. You know, that I'm going to do this for you. Now you go tell four people, and that's going to relieve me of my burden to go talk to those four people myself. Um, that, that he, that I, I just had that thought as I, as I was going through. Um, we won't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 31, apart from this man that's brought out to us in Mark, it mentions that Jesus also healed many others. It says that he sat on a mountain, and he healed multitudes of people from their afflictions. Uh, if you're still in Mark, let's go to Mark chapter 8. Here in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, uh, also recorded in Matthew chapter 15, we have these great multitudes of individuals. So uh, Matthew kind of gives us that context that they're bringing multitudes of people uh, to be healed. Well, these multitudes stay there for three days, three days without food. And Jesus has compassion on them. Similar situation. Uh, the, the disciples are not able to provide a solution. Uh, again, it's remarkable to me that not that much time has passed since the feeding of the 5,000. And yet... Their thoughts do not run to, well, Jesus can perform miracles at scale. Perhaps we can miraculously feed these people again. And whether that's a, a testament to their faith or maybe just a testament to their, their compassion, where those things are at in their maturation process, I don't know. But it is interesting to me that two separate events, feeding large numbers of people at scale, their mind still is not there. But he feeds these 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves and seven fishes. Um, we are, uh, we're, we're basically out of time. So that's good. Two pages, two pages out of five. So we'll, we'll, we'll take it. But uh, let, let's plan to pick back up uh, next week, and we will continue on uh, throughout these, these parallel accounts in, in Mark and in Matthew. And, uh, I, again, I'll, I'll try to leave some time at the start of next week's class if you have any comments or you have any questions about what we've covered, what we've covered this morning. Thank you.